Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. I wish I could remember the exact conceit, but it was probably March of 2020 when there's no baseball. He's doing basically a memory show from his kitchen. And it's like a one-shot thing, and he's just he's walking you through all these games. He does other things. I mean, he did late-night shows. I mean, yes. he's he's a very smart guy. He's an accomplished guy. He's never going to hear what I'm saying about him. He knows I feel this way about him. I really do. I think it's great. I still can hear his voice when he did Strasburg's first game. When I can't remember how many batters Strasburg struck out, but it was like a lot. Yeah, it was a lot. Was it and at 14? 13 or 14? Yeah, it was something like that. And, and How's he doing now? <laughs> Is he pitching anywhere? <laughs> the Tony Kornheiser Show is on now. So that was a conversation we were having about Bob Costas and how much I like Costas. And I did tell everybody that Costas heard it and, you know, relayed to me how nice it was. And on that note, from Justin Kazanza in Knoxville, Tennessee, who writes first time, long time. In the late 1990s, I was an aspiring broadcaster looking for any opportunity to advance my career. Somehow I obtained the home address of Bob Costas. On a whim, I mailed him, yes, I used the U.S. Postal Service, my tape and resume in hopes I could get some tips or perhaps a job co-hosting the Olympics with him. (laughs) Three days after sending the tape, I had a message on my home answering machine. Please explain the concept of a home answering machine to the younger generation before cell phones, kids. (laughs) Life was different. It was none other than the legend himself, Bob Costas, calling to tell me he looked at my tape and had some ideas on how to improve my shows. What a treat. I was floored. Immediately, I sent him a thank you note to tell him how much I appreciated him taking the time to review my tape and provide a critique. Three days later, I had another message from Costas. He was calling to thank me for the thank you note. What a pro. Ever since then, he's been my favorite, and I understand the admiration you have from when you watch him call the Nats game. Thanks for everything you do on the show. That's very, very nice. It leads me into people that I love. Um, I don't think that Bob Costas is controversial in the way that the next person I'm going to say I love is controversial. And that, of course, is Keith Oberman. Keith is controversial. (laughs) Keith has started in the podcast world. He sent me a note saying that his podcast, his debut podcast was yesterday. And I sent him a note back asking him, what time along was he going to do it? Was he going to have guests? Was it going to be thematic? Did he have, forgive me, a philosophy? And he, he, he went, guests? What? <laughs> he says, no, I just sit here. I do what I do. I just sit here. First one was long. The next one, they're going to be about 25 minutes. I just do them when I do them. So it's great to know that Keith is in the podcast business with what we would call a very sophisticated <laughs> philosophy. Yeah. I love Keith Oberman. Oh, yeah. I just think he's so... I know he hates Saliza. I know. Yeah. And I love Saliza. But I just think Keith is so smart yeah. oh, and so yes. talented. I really like him. Yes. Um, I don't want to say I believe I had that because I didn't say it on this show. But yesterday, Helen had come back from England and we were doing exercises and I, Helen had said she had gone to Wimbledon and how much she enjoyed it. And she said she was thinking about going to the city open. And I said, well, you better go quick. And she said, why? I said, because Venus Williams and Andy Murray are going out on their first match. They're going out early. They're taking the guarantee. They're building the gate. They're going out. And lo and behold, to my surprise, not really. <laughs> I saw in the Washington Post this morning, they both lost their first matches. Yes. Andy Murray is... Is physically unable to perform, basically. Be on the pup list if this was football. He keeps trying to come back. He's not healthy. He's not. He's got, he's not got hip issues. He's not healthy. In, within the space of a tournament, he has the capability of beating anybody, but yeah. he can't go the distance. Like, his body starts the to The distance? Down. He didn't even go the first well, round. Yeah, last night, last Who did he lose to? Uh, Somebody you never heard of. Michael Emer, I think his name is. You never heard of her. I, I was not familiar with him. Okay. Venus lost. I don't know who Venus lost to. I don't care who Venus Williams lost to. Venus Williams was a great, great Hall of Fame tennis player. Serena Williams owes Venus Williams an enormous debt of gratitude for being her older sister and taking her under her wing and allowing the greatness. And Serena is one of the all-time greats, one of the two or three all-time greats, to let that flourish without having a tremendous spotlight on her because the spotlight was always on Venus in the beginning. But she's 42 years old. She is, this is not a figurative thing that I'm saying. She literally is playing people half her age yeah. on a regular. She can't win. She cannot beat them. And she didn't. Who did she lose to? I'm sorry. I'm looking that up and I'm having difficulty finding that. It wasn't Simone Halep. It, no, it was not. It, it was not Halep. It was, it was a wild card entry. Yeah, of course it was. It was. Yeah. And that's how it is. This is. Nadal came over here last year. 
decided he would tour the city and play golf at Columbia, yeah. where everybody liked him. He was out in the first round. The, 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 no, he won, I think he won one match. Whatever and then, it is, they're yeah. out early. Yes. The agreement is, I'll come over, I'll help you build the gate, and when it's time for me to go, I go. Right? That's, you know, they're never in the finals. It seems like she was here more for practice than to actually going yeah. deep into Rebecca the Marino of Canada. Dan Marino's daughter? I think it's Dan Marino's cousin, perhaps, yes. Marino with an E or an A? Oh. Marino Wool M- Marino. is with an e. Marino. No, no, no. Is it M-E or M-A? M-A. Okay, so it's not the Wool. It's right. Dan. It's not the Wool. <laughs> I just want to make that separate. Just be grateful that first week of August, the rain waited till after play to uh, make its appearance. Oh, you yeah. Said you had tremendous last. rain. Yeah, big storm. Well, well, we what did you find on your way over here? Well, I found I had to, I had to reroute. <laughs> In the middle, there was a big tree down on Massachusetts right. Avenue just when you, you're coming off of, um, was it Little Falls Parkway? Little Falls. Yes. And well, I figured like, your car could go right under. I, I was hoping to, but no, it was it was a very big section of road that was, uh, that was closed Do you off. see where they have parking for the tennis tournament? No. This is very local. Are they, so you, is it a stage, stage thing where you take a bus from someone? You, I'm sure you have to take a bus. House? About, in, in traffic, this is about 30 minutes to the tennis pavilion. This is right across from the old Lord and Taylor, uh, you know, oh, in the parking lot next to the Geico That's Center. crazy. Yeah. That's so far away. Well, military Avenue never backs up. <laughs> that's so far away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's totally insane. Wow, that's nuts. Hope um, I don't have that parking lot. Yeah. That's your credential. <laughs> parking lot, parking lot nudge. All right, so I have this other thing to say. Yesterday I was very excited to watch the Nats game because Max Scherzer was pitching, not for the Nats, but for the Mets. I just like to watch Max Scherzer pitch because I think he's a great warrior god, as I've often said. The Nats lost the game. Scherzer won. Patrick Corbin sailed through the first. Three up, three down. I texted Chuck Todd. Three up, three down. What are we seeing here? And the set couldn't get out of the second. Couldn't get out of the fourth. Whatever it was. His record is something like four and 15. Mm. And his ERA is something like six, seven, nine. He may be the worst starting. He never wins. He never gets to the seventh inning. He may be the worst highly paid starting pitcher in baseball. Is that fair to say? He may be this year. Yes. And to watch those two go head to head, they are forever Friends. linked. Friends. For sure. But forever linked because of the roles that each one had to play in that 2019 play. Going to the bullpen, doing everything that they could do. To watch Max Scherzer give up a home run to Juan Soto. Three rows into dead center. You know, Juan, I mean. Juan is still walking to first base. There's a part of that. That, that Max Scherzer, I'm sure, laughs at. I'm sure he thinks, I love Juan Soto. We did this together. I love Patrick Corbin. I love a lot of these. Well, there's nobody else left. You know, I, but I wonder how Max Scherzer felt. I didn't read any quotes. I haven't read stories about pitching in Nats Park for another team. He went six and two-thirds. How many pitches, Michael? Like 106, 107. It was his highest pitch count of the year. Why would you do Comes that Comes into to the him? seventh just to get to Victor Robles. Well, Still don't make sense. I don't understand that. Take him out after six. The Nats got to him. The Nats got three in an inning. The, the, the Nats cuffed him up a little bit. I mean, Max Scherzer. And he, and he does this thing that I hate it when Tanner Rainey does it. I don't like it when Max Scherzer does it, but I give him the benefit of the doubt. He nibbles at 0-2 and 1-2, and, and, and he goes to 3-2, and two, and he walked Soto twice, didn't he? Yeah. I think he walked Soto twice, and he had him 1-2 or 0-2 or something like that because he nibbles because he wants to make a perfect pitch. He only had five strikeouts. He did not have a great outing. He got a win. He did not have a great outing. But he's, he's a, strike, he's a strikeout pitcher. But then you look at it last night and you look at that pitch count. And you start to say the one thing you can't have is for him to go in October saying my own. Oh, oh yeah, can't have it. No. Um, no, this it's impossible. So if you're the Mets and you're the Mets fans and uh, the Mets fans were out in full force, no. it's it's a lose lose because if you don't gain any ground by beating the Nats, it's on your schedule already as a win. So all yeah. you can do is lose ground. Uh, but no, the entire game was about Juan Soto. This you know you're checking. MLB trade rumors you're seeing if Fine Sand has sent out another you know push. Yeah, we'll have Fine Sand on later. And you just have this lingering camera every time he comes up to bat. Every time he came up to bat, I tried to watch. I had I had Walker right. come down to see him before. He and went to yet, bat. Bob Carpenter never said a word about the possibility of him being. He traded. did at the end of the game, and they did oh. some camera work where they where they sat Not on Soto as he's going up to players in the dugout, putting his arm around them. He's just sitting on the bench because after he the game. thinks he thinks he's gone before before today. first pitch six yes, o'clock. Six Why? O'clock. How do you come up with six? Is it just for like trying to protect West Coast? time or it helps us we're off the air today yeah <laughs> we're off the air for a baseball special i'm grateful for that but yeah that that could have been his last game well, and at least game. it was at home and at least he hit a homer well you not know. even that did you, did you see his throw i think it was in the second inning threw somebody out yeah 
So I bring this all up because I have not unwrapped this yet. As you know, I have asked, I asked the Mets and was met originally with a certain amount of skepticism on this. <laughs> I asked the Mets if they could get a Binghamton Rumble Ponies jersey for me that Max Scherzer wore, that he pitched in. It has been sent. I have not opened it. Nigel, you have seen it. I have not. No, I did not. Um, Here we oh, go. Here's yeah, the reveal. New Such a cool well. name. The Rumble logo. The yes. Let's see. The Binghamton Rumble Ponies. Says Rumble Ponies. It's signed, signed by Scherzer. Signed by Scherzer. Look signed at by Scherzer on the back. It says Scherzer to Tony Max Scherzer. Does it smell like winning? It's just how great is this? That's fantastic. Rumble Ponies. <laughs> I didn't know that he wore this one. I know he wore the blue one that said Bing on the front, but I didn't know he wore this Rumble Ponies. Is there a note? I was told there would be a note with this. Uh, there was no note in the box. No, so unless there's something in that I think the note bag. is to Tony. Yes. Okay. We're going to put this on <laughs> the next time we do PTI. <laughs> yes. We're going to put this on yes. in the last segment, a Rumble Ponies thing. <laughs> That's fantastic. How great is that? I've never asked for anything quite like this before. It's one of the coolest stories as you see big marquee players working their way back to majors as they take these reps, particularly starting pitchings, uh, pitchers. And you saw the story where he's buying everyone like AirPods. Right. <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah. Because they make a lot of money. Yeah, like him yeah. and DeGrom. And it shows right. some larger, a, uh, larger issues within yeah. the structure of baseball, you know? yes. Yeah, but that, that's a wonderful These gesture. These are rehab starts yeah. in the minors, and Max Scherzer treats all of his three-day teammates to something great. Because he makes over $40 million a year, and he's worth every... Not like John Wall, who doesn't actually show up for $40 million a year. Max Scherzer shows up. And if you send him down for a rehab start to Binghamton, he shows up. Yes. He starts there. If, you, if, if Binghamton's on the road at the Hartford Yard Goats, he starts there. He's ready to go. The, the day before, tracking pitches. Always makes me think. So this of, makes me happy. What do I do with it? Do I, do I frame it? You got to frame it. But which, frame side do you, yeah, side? which side do you frame? You know, I don't know. I well, don't it doesn't know. say Kornheiser on the back. Yeah, you can actually Thank wear this God. one. Yeah, I could. <laughs> Tuck it in, cross the line. Very, ready very to go. Good. But doesn't that minor league stuff doesn't always make you think of Bull Durham? When yeah. he's like, I've been to the show. They carry your bags for you and stuff like that. <laughs> That's a wonderful movie. Not yes. Mr. Baseball. The, the writer and director's name is Ron Shelton, and he was, in fact, a minor league baseball player. It's really? I think he also wrote Tin Cup. I think you're right. And I, I think, think he right. also wrote White Men Can't Jump. Oh, that I don't know. Why don't you look that up? Yes. Because if he did, he's written about a niche category. three of the best sports movies of all time. The th probably the three funniest, right? Yeah. Did he write them all? I thought he did. I could be wrong. Ron Shelton? Was it yeah, Ron name? Shelton, S-H-E-L-T-O-N. Ron Shelton. If I'm not making this up, I don't think I'm making this up. Let's I mean, I may be, but uh, what do you got? Filmography. Uh, let's see. Uh, Tin Cup, uh, director, and written that. Play it to the bone. Uh, bad Boys. I do not see. Oh, there it is. Yeah. White Men Can't Jump, 1992. Director and written by. And this one. Yeah. As also and Bull Durham. Uh, Bull Durham, Blue Chips, Cobb. Do you think he did well? I think he's Do you think Ron right. Shelton did well? I, yes. Oh. Yes, you're right. It's an incredible niche. It's an incredible but niche. But very relatable. Funny sports movies. And one of my it's a funny sports movie. I don't know if you've ever seen it. The Best of Times with Robin Williams and Kurt Russell. No, I know what it's about. I yeah. haven't seen it. They replay like a high school game and everybody's yeah. old at this point. And so Robin Williams can't play. Right? <laughs> he's, can't the see. he's the receiver that caught, that missed, the, he dropped the ball. And he know, gets the, another chance. And he gets a chance When at does the Steve end? Stans come out for the field goal? <laughs> and on that note, we'll get out of here. Michael Wilbon, when we return, I'm Tony Kornheiser. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is sent to us by Hal Duranik, who writes, Friends, Romans, Mr. Tony, lend us your ears. I come to bury the almost faithful, not praise them. Actually, we really like the praise, so don't hold back on that. Regardless, the almost faithful have their final show at the Blue Moon Tavern in Seattle on Saturday, August 6th. That's this Saturday. Mr. Tony, have you ever been to Seattle when it wasn't raining or snowing? I'm 65% sure you'd find it perfectly pleasant. 
Anyhow, you're listening to our song, Enemy. If there ever was a song I think you'd be interested in just for the title, <laughs> Enemy would be the one. Maybe if we change it to Enemy's List. Also, tell Chuck Todd this has French horn in it. Feel free to mention it to Edith Saliza as well. Enemy by The Almost Faithful. We appreciate that. Plays in Michael Wilbon. And there are two stories. Yesterday, we did something on PTI that we have rarely, if ever, done. I'm sure we've done it, but it's very rare. In the first block, we did two stories. We didn't do three. We didn't force something in there that was not on the level of these two stories. And these two stories were an extraordinarily important news story, the six-game suspension of Deshaun Watson. This is a big deal. Like, this is a big deal. Don't say, oh, I'm sick of Deshaun Watson. No, this is a big deal. Six games, because both Mike and I thought it was alarmingly light. And the death of Bill Russell, our chance to talk about Bill Russell, who both of us have seen. We'll just take them in order. We'll start with Deshaun Watson. You've had time... You've had time to think about this. What, what, what are your thoughts today, uh, you know, with, with a night's sleep on six games for Deshaun Watson? So we're at the point now, a day later, where the question is, is the league going to appeal? Is the mm-hmm. league going to mm-hmm. say, six games, we can't have that. We, we know how stupid this looks because we've done things like this before. We've given people two games and, and, and had to suffer the consequences of being idiots. And now that this former federal judge, Sue L. Robinson, has, has given him six games when he should have gotten 16 or, you know, 14 or 12 at least, we, we, we have to appeal this. And I, I, you know, Tony, I know that yesterday I kept going back and forth, and, and yes. you voiced my only concern about this, which is how do you, when you're the NFL, and the system is so broken, your system is so broken, that you bring in this retired federal judge as an independent person to adjudicate these matters. How do you then uh, uh, submerge, you know, submarine her? How do you then just sort of say, ah, yeah, no, we brought you in to do this, but we're going to take it away? Um, I, I, I think they sort of have to do it. I, See, this is, it this is a good point. The, Yeah, this is a good point that you bring up. The NFL has been accused for many years of being tone deaf, of being high-handed, of being autocratic. So they negotiate with the players, with the players union, and they they get an acceptance that says we're going to farm these things out to a distinguished third party. We reserve the right to appeal, but we're going to farm the things out. And then, Mike, on the very first time they do it, and they get a woman judge And a lot of people would make the point that if a woman judge looked at crimes against women and only gave this player six games, you can live with that. And and then it looks like they're going to Bigfoot her. Yes, that is problematic. You're right. It is. It is problematic. But I think it it very well may happen. I think the league really can't go forward with this. And it, it seems to, well, from what I've been listening to for 24 hours, I think 75% of the people believe it is too light, like we do. Yeah. And if that is the case, then you got to do something. I think the league will overturn this. Um, well, what they can do, they, I think they have 72 hours to appeal. Yeah. And they can appeal to a certain number. I think they probably have to say, no, we believe that it should be X. And Roger Goodell, if he wants to, can hear the case. Now, if I were Roger Goodell, I would not hear the case. I would put a loyal lieutenant in there and tell him exactly what kind of punishment I want. I would not, if I were Goodell, do it myself because that would look like high-handedness as well. But I also think, Mike, that if they do that and if they appeal, and of course they, they win the appeal because it's pro forma, I don't think it'll be 16. I don't think it'll be 14. I think they'll go to eight and see if they can get well, away with eight easier, and say to women fans, we're here cry. for you. There's less outcry about being heavy-handed with her if you go right. to eight or nine. That's and maybe right. people just say, That's all right. right, you know, that, okay, we can live with, with the NFL big footing to that degree. But I don't know, Tom. I, 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 yeah, I, even the, it seems to me they may very well do that and go to 10 or a, a 12. But I just think that they're not, well, not going to just let this stand. Then, that then, and we haven't considered this, then there's the possibility that the players' union will say, whoa, 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 
You can't yeah. do this now. There is, of course. I there mean is. that you know you can yeah. you can go to eight, but you can't go to twelve. I mean, I think well, they could that, say it, that, it, right? It's probably going to happen. Yes. Yeah. But I think they have. So it's, to, I, I think they just it's can't a tight rope. stand at six. It's a tightrope right. walk. It is that they're all on at this point. And, it is. and I agree with you. I mean, I, I would say that if you take the Haslam's out of it, most people would say this is really light. <laughs> you know, if you take the yeah. ownership group out, That's what we've most heard. people would say you're kidding. It is 24 lawsuits. And not only that, but what, what was the phrase that Judge Robinson used? Yeah, Did she say, uh, predatory. Uh, uh, it was something predatory. But predatory. deliberately predatory. Yeah. Uh, predatory is a predatory. very strong. That's a very strong phrase to only get six yes. games. Yes. Purposefully predatory. That's why it's going right. to be more than six games. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I, you know, yes. they can appeal. If, if they appeal tomorrow, we'll have it on the show. If they appeal today, we have no show. Let's go to Bill Russell. And your thoughts, you know mine, about Bill Russell, that he was larger than most sufficiently larger than most. What are your thoughts? The same, pretty much as yours, Tony. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a household where this is this was the way you played basketball to my father. I remember I did something last night that brought me great um, nostalgia, joy, sadness. Um, it was a replay uh, on NBA TV of the Game 7, 1969, Bill Russell's last game. They're playing at the Forum against Jerry West and Will Chamberlain and Elgin Baylor and Gail Goodrich. And you're like, oh my God, this is just too great. And I, you know, I lose Matthew after about five minutes. He's like, Dad, what, what is the deal with the graphics on the TV? I'm like, shut up with the graphics. Watch the game. He's like, they're, they're, they're going so slow. Nobody's using a left hand. He did make observations that were valid. And I just go, yeah, I kind of see what you're talking about. I said, you're watching Jerry West and Will Chamberlain. Shut up. And I watched the whole thing. Because I wanted to see Russell. I'm consumed now with Russell. Um, and, and how he, not, not, not how he played as much as that. He dominated the way he did. And he beat Wilt all the time. Like all the, you know, time. the Washington Generals and the Harlem Globetrotters. And he beat them all the time, even though... And and he made people say that the Celtics had better players. They didn't have better players. Wilt had better players, and he couldn't beat Russell. It's just that simple. And I watched it last night, and I was just like, man, this dude... I mean, people don't even know... Tony, how about this? In a game, a previous Game 7, okay? I'm about to say what happened in Game 7. Russell, 30 points, 44 rebounds. Wow. They don't know how many block mm-hmm. shots he had because the NBA was too dumb to keep block didn't shots keep back then. Then keep they didn't keep him assists. his whole career. Didn't they didn't keep start keeping block shots yeah. like 1973. Yeah, but he had something like 14 block shots, and he had 30. Let me, let me say it again: 30 and 44. Um, uh, so I, I mean, people, you uh, can, people can uh, go with wins over replacements if they want. It just makes me want to beat the hell out of them for doing it. Bill and Russell I, I watched it about by block it shots. My, what's that, Tom? He talked about block shots. His teammates talked about block shots. It, yeah. There was, there was a devastating quality to his blocked shots that energized his whole team yeah. and just thwarted the other team. I, look, I'm not going to ever make the case that he was the greatest basketball player of well, all you, time. You I can't, can't make that case. <laughs> you I can won't. do it if you want. Well, but I would say that he's got the greatest resume of all time, and certainly yeah. he's the greatest winner of all time. And certainly if you are handing out awards, if you are handing out, you know, who's the best or who's this or who's that, if Bill Russell isn't on the short list, you don't understand basketball. That's right. It's, you don't. You don't get it. Simple. And you're obsessed with yeah. things that are worthless. So Doc Rivers told this great story, tells this great story about, Ten years ago, or more, let's be more than that now, because Cousy's going to be ninety-four years old next week. He's still Tom alive, Bob Cousy. He's ninety-four. Still alive. Yeah. So yeah. this is maybe this is probably you know at least twenty-five years ago, and Doc is playing golf with Cousy and JoJo White, or Cousy and Sam Jones. Sam Jones played a lot. Sam Jones played with my father-in-law. I played with Sam Jones here in Washington, and Doc just couldn't. So he's playing. He's got. 
you know, four and a half, five hours with Kuzi and Sam Jones. And he said all they did was tell Russell stories, great Russell stories. Russell's not there. Russell's, Russell's somewhere else. They could talk about maybe how great they were because, hello, they're in the Hall of mm. Fame, right? Yeah. And Doc yeah. said, no, no, no. They did not talk about themselves. They talked about what Russell did. And they had great stories, and Doc was mesmerized by this. And as he's telling the story, you can hear it in his voice that he was just in awe of them being in awe. That, that's, you know, Tony, that's the, the, the thing to come away with Russell. And, I, you know, I, I mentioned one story yesterday. I, I guess I told it. I was, on too much, I was on TV too much. I think I told it on our show that when Medgar Evers was assassinated in 1963, Bill Russell called his brother, Charlie, called his brother and said, this is Bill Russell. There's got to be something that you need. What, what, what can I do? What can we do? And Medgar Evers' brother, in his grief, said, could you come to Mississippi and give a basketball clinic, and can it be integrated? 1963, nothing was integrated, nothing. Not, not in Mississippi. And Russell said, okay, I'll do this. And he did. And Russell received all sorts of death threats in the run-up to conducting what very well could have been. Look, it was against the law, as you know, Tony, for black and white men in college to play against each other in the Carolinas. And the Carolinas might as well have been New York City relative to Mississippi in 1963. Russell conducted the clinic. Yeah. At a camp. Uh, and this was, he, he just, he, he was just stubborn and bold and um, <laughs> brilliant. And he just said, okay, this is what we're doing. And John Thompson. I, it's just is, one of the is, many stories that's out there now. Yeah. Uh, and Jackie McMullen, by the way, there's just two people that you want to hear. On Ryan Russell. and Jackie. Ryan and Jackie. Yeah. And sure. Russell they, they, yeah. and Jackie struck up a friendship when she was 22. And it lasted, as she said on the air, she told the story. I was on uh, NBA Today with her, and she it lasted 40 years. So my Russell, I have nothing with Russell personally. And I had to write a story for a book, an ESPN book, 23, 24 years ago. And I did the story through the eyes of John Thompson, who was then obviously the totally celebrated coach at Georgetown, who had done things that had never been done before. And he revered Russell. He worshipped the ground that Russell walked on. He had... Russell's sneakers in his office. Yes, he, he did. backed them up right. for four or five years uh, on the Celtics. And John never said nice things about many, but he loved Russell and he loved Auerbach. He loved them both beyond anything you can imagine. And he told me the story because I read it yesterday. I went back and read the piece. Wow, I got to see that. He told he told me the story that when he was around Bill Russell in Boston, and Boston at that period of time was an extraordinarily white, Catholic, and clannish city. When he was around, it was not hospitable to blacks. It was not hospitable to Jews. It was not hospitable to anybody other than them. It wasn't. It just wasn't, and everybody knows that, and they know that. Um, when he was around Bill Russell, he never felt physically afraid, and when he was not around Bill Russell, he felt physically afraid. And John Thompson is 6'10 and 300 pounds. And he felt physically afraid. And he, he admired Russell so much. He admired the fact, and John's really smart. He admired Russell's intellect. He admired his leadership. He admired the fact that he lived in a world of his own making. You're telling that story about Charles Evers and the uh, clinic in Mississippi. Bill Russell was not afraid. Everybody concentrates on that he didn't sign autographs. Okay, he didn't sign autographs. But he talked to you. I mean, John Thompson told me that story, that he talked to a kid for like 30 minutes after a game, and the mother was upset that he wouldn't sign a piece yeah, of paper. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. and, and John said, so doesn't it like get that. to you? 
doesn't it get to you? And he said, Russell didn't answer. He just kept driving the car when they were talking about it. So those things happen. At the end of the piece is a Red Auerbach story. And it said that years after Russell was, um, you know, gone from the league, Auerbach was still there, of course. And they had great players. You know, they had Cowens and, as you mentioned, JoJo White. They, you know, they had great players. And there was a, yeah, there was a, I think Havlicek played a little with Russell, but there were guys who never played with Russell and they were great players. And Auerbach was at a practice and uh, these guys were talking about how great they were. And Auerbach allegedly says, because how I ended the piece, if Russell was here, all you sorry bastards wouldn't have a chance. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it, so it, when, you, when, you, when you make the list of the most important people in the history of a sport, and it's a knowable sport because it just sort of started pro basketball in the 40s, Russell and Auerbach are on that list. Oh, well, Incredibly they, they important. They helped invent yes. basketball as we know yes. it. Tony, one of yes. the great things is that, look, the person who sort of has that quality when he walks into a room you automatically know this guy. This guy is the greatest person to walk in the room. Of course, Michael Jordan has yeah. that, and I walked into enough rooms with him, and I've been in enough rooms where he walked in when I was already there. But I know this. And unlike today's players, unlike LeBron, who's great. He's all-time great, all-time great in the history of sports, LeBron James. When somebody says, to, when Michael Jordan was voted, the greatest athlete of the 20th century by ESPN in a poll you and I participated in. We did. We I did. was one of the people on the phone who had to call, who called Jordan to tell him he had won, quote-unquote won. Jordan was angry. He was really, he was somewhere between annoyed and angry and disappointed. And I, I remember saying, what is wrong with you? And he goes, do you think I am ever going to let the sentence come out of my mouth that I'm better than Bill Russell? It's Michael Jordan. Okay? Not Dwight Howard. It's Michael Jordan. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm never saying that. Then he then went on to say, he he said, you know, I'm never going to say I'm better than Bird and Magic and Julius. He said, I'm never saying that. But the notion of Jordan saying he's better than Russell, it was like Jordan could feel his you know, father's hand coming out of the grave to snatch Michael down into the ground if he even dared say that. Not that Jordan need to have his father object. Jordan objected. I'm not saying that. And that's, that's what people who have any sense of history, but you no, know, Tony, we're not dealing with two generations of people who don't know anything about history. Two generations of probably worldwide. I don't know that. I know it's at least two generations of Americans. Don't give a damn. And they don't know. There's no shame that they don't know. Yeah, that's the bad part. They don't care that they don't know. That's the part that that leaves me angry and sad and depressed about where we're going as a people. We We don't even respect history. So we don't respect the people who made it. And so the loss of Bill Russell, you know, you know, how long, how long before we get to the point where people just don't know and don't, and don't care and are willing to say Russell, yeah, well, you know, he only averaged 15.1 a game. How could he, how could he be in in my top 12? Well, you're an idiot. Not enough points. Yeah. (laughs) All right. All right. I'll talk. I won't talk to you later. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Enjoy the day. Appreciate it. Michael Wilbon, boys and girls. Uh, We'll take a break. Mark Feinstein, when we return, try to catch us up on what's happening with the baseball trade deadline, which is, as we sit here at 8.15 in the morning, about uh, 10 hours away. I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. Turns out Shohei Otani is actually two guys. Two guys from Japan, roughly the same size. It started as a joke, just a little white lie. But now they gotta keep it up and say, Otani's one guy. 
One is a pitcher throws a hundred miles an hour. One hits homers, got a lot of power. One is from Tokyo, one's from Yokohama. Different daddies, different mama. Otani the pitcher eats fish and drinks martinis. Otani the hitter likes coke and roasted weenies. They room together, but they don't hang out a lot. The pitcher likes it cold, and the hitter likes it hot. If Otani the pitcher ever came up to the plate, he'd strike out every time. He wouldn't look great. If Otani the hitter ever took to the mound, he'd throw it to the backstop, or he'd bounce it on the ground. Show, hey, Otani is actually two guys, two guys from Japan. Roughly the same size It started as a joke Just a little white lie But now they gotta keep it up And say Otani's one guy Last year they split the MVP prize Turns out Otani is actually two guys Brilliant, the brilliant Dan Byrne The absolutely brilliant Dan Byrne Plays in Mark Feinstein What do you think of that? Wasn't that good? Wasn't Listen, that a good I, song? I love, I love Dan Burns stuff. That might be the best one I've ever heard from him. It's just, it's just <laughs> the conceit incredible. of it is absolutely wonderful. I didn't even um, think of that. It's a, uh, he's brilliant. That's different from us. We're plumbers, and he's an artist, and that's how it works. Um, it's 8.15 in the morning. Uh, what happened overnight? What do you expect? Where are we? Where are we in the trade deadline process as far as you're concerned? Right now, everything is on Juan Soto watch at this point. Uh, you know, the two biggest starting pitchers, Luis Castillo and, and Frankie Montas, both moved already. Uh, there are right. still, you know, a handful of pitchers who are out there who will uh, get some get some play. And you know, Tyler Molly from the from the Reds, and you know, there's a couple guys out there who we don't know if they're going to be traded or not. In Carlos Rodon from the Giants, or Nathan Evaldi from the Red Sox, you know, a couple of controllable guys, Pablo Lopez from Miami. So there are names out there that could impact races and, and move, but they're not sure things. Soto's not a sure thing either, but he's, he's the story today. Either either somebody ponies up the, uh, the prospect capital and the young players to get him, or they don't move him, which is as equally big of a story. Did you watch the game last night? Did you watch Soto's behavior in the dugout? Did you get any sense? Uh, there was a standing ovation for him from the fans because the deadline is 6 o'clock, so if he's traded, it, he's not coming out again. He, you know, it's, it's over unless he's traded to the Mets. Then he comes out in a different uniform. What was your <laughs> sense of Soto's posture? Watching him last night, it certainly looked like he was – sort of soaking it in, thinking this is going to be my last game uh, with the Nationals. And, you know, fans were certainly approaching it that way. You saw in his last at-bat, which was a walk, you saw, you know, everybody had their their phones up videoing the, the at-bat as if to say, this was Juan Soto's last at-bat as a National, and I was there, and here's what it was. Um, and you could see he was looking around more than he usually does. So, uh you know, he has been very straightforward in understanding where this is, and uh, he understands that, that he could be on a new team as of tonight, uh, and he also could not be. And I think he understands that, that you know, it's a business. He, he said that last night. He said they need to do whatever they need to do, and this is coming from a guy who's done what he needs to do because, uh, you know, a lot of people have taken the tact of, well, he turned down $440 million. If he wanted to be in Washington, it's a pretty good contract. Uh, so, Look, it is a business, and I think Soto understands that. And uh, watching his body language last night, I feel like he felt it was going to be his last game with the Nationals. Yeah. Are there leaders in the chase? Are there one or two or three teams where you say, this team will put together a package that will be attractive enough to Mike Rizzo? I think the leaders in the chase are the Dodgers and the Padres. Uh, I don't know if it's in that order, but I think those are the two teams, which ironically were the two teams that were the leaders in the chase for Max Scherzer last year. Um, yeah. You know, they're two very aggressive teams. They're two very good teams. AJ Preller, the GM of the Padres, is a very aggressive executive. Uh, he lost out on Scherzer last year. I don't know that he's going to allow himself to get 
to lose out on Juan Soto this year uh, based on sort of where the Padres are and the fact that they are still chasing down the Dodgers. Um, the Cardinals are sort of on the fringe of the race. I don't know that they're going to give up the kind of player and prospect capital it's going to take to get Juan Soto. If you think about the fact that Luis Castillo, the pitcher from the Reds, uh, went to the Mariners the other day and cost Seattle three of its top five prospects. That's for a year and a couple of months of Luis Castillo, mm-hmm. who's a really good pitcher, but not you know a generational pitcher. If that's what, it, what Luis Castillo costs, what's Juan Soto going to cost? Five top prospects plus a young player or two? Uh, you know, this is going to be one of the biggest packages we've ever seen traded for a player. Uh, the Dodgers and Padres both have deep systems and uh, the desire to do it. And I think if he gets traded, it's going to be to one of those Southern California teams. So just when you say that, one of the biggest packages we've ever seen, that happened with Herschel Walker in football. Herschel Walker was traded away from Dallas to Minnesota, I believe. It made Dallas. Everything they got as a result of that made Dallas. You didn't think so at the time. And, you know, you could, you could analogize Herschel Walker and Juan Soto. Herschel Walker was a phenom for the first three or four years, but it hurt. It helped Dallas to trade him away. I, I was curious about this because yesterday before we went on the air, Josh Hader, who at one point was a great reliever and is still an awfully good reliever. He's got two blown saves. That's all in like 57 strikeouts in 34 innings this year. He went from Milwaukee to San Diego. Do you read the language of San Diego getting Josh Hader as making them more interested or less interested in Juan Soto? I would say more, I think. I mean, Hader's under control for one more year, so it wasn't all about this season, uh, but neither is Soto. Soto's not about this season either. He's about this season, next season, and in his case, the year after that as well. Uh, You know, Hader, I think that trade was as much about Milwaukee not wanting to spend $15 million next year on a reliever and San Diego not having an issue with that concept. Um, But yeah, look, when you go out and get a guy who's been an all-star for the last five years, actually I should say the last four all-star games, because there was no all-star game in 2020, uh, he's one of the best relievers in the sport. And he's had a little bit of a hiccup lately, but the Padres are going for it. And, you know, the the hater move certainly shows that. Um, And the, the impressive thing about the hater move, they were able to get Josh Hader without giving up any of their top five prospects. Uh, you know, they traded a couple guys from, from down low in their system, and they traded Taylor Rogers, their current closer, uh, and, and Denelson Lamette, who's a, a very talented young pitcher who just can't stay healthy. Uh, but they kept all the big prospects that they would need to trade for Soto. So um, they have the tools to get it done. It's just a question of uh, are they willing to sort of, like you said, the Herschel Walker trade, are they willing to pay what you know, could be a little bit of painful freight to bring back a talent like Soto. So I'm, I'm also curious about this. The Nats are for sale. I don't know that they have a buyer group or a single buyer. I, I don't really have any idea about that. But from a philosophical standpoint, Mark, do you think that the Washington Nationals owe whoever the new owner is going to be the chance to make a decision on Juan Soto and then would not trade him this year because you want to make that transition and give the new owners a chance to have input. You know, I had conversations with people at the All-Star Game about this, and some people said, yeah, you absolutely, you know, the, the franchise is worth more with the possibility of Juan Soto being a part of it, and you wouldn't want to trade him before you complete that sale. And somebody else turned around and said, yeah, but do you really want to put the new owner in a position where the first act of their time as owner is going to be to trade Juan Soto and then, you know, infuriate the fan base right off the bat. It's sort of, think about Chaim Bloom of the Red Sox when he took over uh, as their chief of baseball operations. The first thing he had to do was trade Mookie Betts. And that was sort of his introduction to the Boston fan base. So a new owner comes in, says, hey, I'm here to rescue your team, and we're going to be great, and we're going to win World Series, uh, but first we're going to trade Juan Soto. So uh, they may be saving a new owner from themselves by trading Soto now. uh, But, yeah, if I'm a new owner, I certainly would like the opportunity to sit down with Juan Soto and see if there's a way to work it out to keep him there because, you know, keeping a guy like that has got to be good for a franchise. Yeah, I'll get you out of here on this. I did notice that the Yankees added three different players, um, right? Did they add a hitter, a reliever, and a starter? The Yankees seem to know what they're doing most of the time, even though they have been a mediocre team over the last 
25 or 26 games, something like that. What are your thoughts on what the Yankees did? Yeah, you know, Brian Cashman went into this deadline thinking he needed an outfielder because Joey Gallo is unplayable for them at this point. They got Andrew Benintendi. They needed a reliever yeah. or two. Uh, Michael King out for the season. Chad Green out for the season. Uh, they went out and got this guy. They didn't go out and get the big name. They got a kid named Scott Efros, who has been phenomenal for the Cubs this year. 27, 28 years old, five more years of control. Very stealth Cashman move, sort of like a year ago. He traded for Clay Holmes, and nobody paid any attention to it. And now Clay Holmes has been one of the best relievers in baseball. Uh, and then, of course, Castillo was the guy that everybody thought they were targeting. They missed out on him. Uh, but then they went and got Frankie Montas, who was, you know, sort of the, the 1A to Castillo's one in this market. Uh, and, you know, with Severino out for another month or so or, or month and a half, uh, Montas is the guy that they're, they're going to pencil in there behind Garrett Cole as their number two starter. And, uh, you know, they, they knew what they needed. They went out and did it. They didn't give up any of their you know, top, top prospects. I think they gave up the number five guy and the number seven guy. Uh, but they kept, you know, Volpe and Peraza and all these other guys who were the ones everybody was afraid they were going to have to trade to, to get better. Brian Cashman's really good at his job. That's, that's the lesson that you learn every year. Uh, he, he just gets it done and, and figures out a way to, to make his team better. I'd enjoy the day. You'll be working till 6 o'clock. You know, the Soto thing can go. We are off. We're so happy to be off. They moved the deadline from four to six just so PTI could be off the air <laughs> and they could do a baseball special. Enjoy it. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Tony. Appreciate it. Mark Feinstein, boys and girls. We will take a break. Email and jingle when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. great musicianship comes from a guy who's an emergency room doctor <laughs> it's pretty good ian warrington fantastic Nigel, do the Bethesda Bagels ad for us, please. Yes, Bethesda Bagels, we love them. You will as well. Just go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you. Then pop on in, and you'll be thrilled. That's it for us today. Before we get to the mailbag, let me say, when Whippoorwill calls, an evening is nigh. I heard of my blue heaven. A hundred thousand people have done that song. None better than Fats Domino. Yes. That's the number Antoine, one. Antoine, yes. Yeah, Antoine Fats Domino. <laughs> thanks to our guests today, Michael Wilbon, Mark Feinsand. Thanks to our sponsors, MeUndies. Michael did a great read, Indochino and SeatGeek. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Odyssey. If you get the show through Apple Pod- Podcasts, please leave us a review. Big, big day at summer camp today. What? What do you think would get the three- and five-year-old crowds running wild? Performance. Oh, the, the great zucchini. zucchini. The great zucchini is performing today. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Are you going to go? You got to go. I sort of, I want to show up, but I'm not sure I'm allowed. Oh, really? It's because only kids? Yeah. And then I think if I'm creeping in the background, that makes it worse. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Give them our best if you see them. Yes. From oh, 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 <clears throat> Stephen yes. Cole in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Mr. Tony, after your discussion about Bob Costas, I thought it was time to share my Costas story. My last Army duty station was in Los Angeles. I had an opportunity to video a pregame read before an MLB network broadcast. The script said something like, this is our game, our national pastime, our game of inches, etc. The word hour must have been in the script five or six times. Bob Costas, standing in the back of the booth, finally interrupted me after several reads and said, typically, I wouldn't tell an Army officer how to do his job, but since you're doing mine, I felt it was okay. He then proceeded to tell me that my southern pronunciation of the word hour should sound like our and not our. I thanked him. He left, and I eventually completed the read. Later, I saw him on the concourse. He asked me how it went. I said, sir, I think your job is safe. He paused, looked at me in the eye, and said, so is yours. And we both walked on. From Tom Elwood, formerly of Hancock, New York, now residing in Key West. That is a big jump. Hancock, New York, on the Susquehanna River in upstate New York, now not anywhere near as lovely as Key West. It says, dear Gramps, This is Tom from Hancock, New York. The last time I reached out to you was May 2020. I was listening to the pod yesterday, and you were talking about Los Angeles Rams. You may have said nine million times, correct me if I'm wrong, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. 
You mentioned Hancock, New York two times in recent weeks. You got it wrong both times. The first time you were talking to Feinstein about some store in Carbondale, Pennsylvania and said it's near Hancock, which is an exit off Interstate 81. Hancock does not have an exit off I-81. No, it's Route 17. I know that, so I don't know why I got that wrong. Hancock is off Route 17 at exit 87. The second time, you were talking about the Susquehanna River. You said the Susquehanna ran through Hancock. It doesn't, right? It's the Delaware River. Hancock is where the East Branch and the West Branch of the Delaware River meet. That's what we used to take canoe trips on the Delaware River. Right. It's fondly known as the Wedding of the Waters. For someone who went to camp in what I refer to as a Hancock suburb on the Pennsylvania side of the Delaware River, you need to get your facts straight. <laughs> you may recall, I'm the guy who worked at the Mayflower Hotel. I was in D.C. a couple of weeks ago for a wedding. I stayed at the Mayflower. You'll be happy to know I got free parking at the PMI lot. When retrieving my car on the morning we departed, I asked a couple of attendants if they'd seen Tony Kornheiser lately. Their response was, who? <laughs> Thanks for all the laughs. Wonderful. Just wonderful. And he's right, and I was wrong. I don't know why I was wrong. From Grant Martin in Raleigh, North Carolina, who grew up in Williamsport, or as I like to call it, the Binghamton of Pennsylvania. Are we playing the Susquehanna River game now? As noted, the Susquehanna originates in Otsego Lake and flows through Cooperstown, New York, the legendary birthplace of baseball. But did you further know that the mighty Susquehanna also flows through Williamsport, Pennsylvania, the birthplace of Little League Baseball and home every August to the Little League World Series? Talk about connective tissue. That's one river connecting two legendary baseball bergs en route to its final destination, the Chesapeake Bay at Havre de Grace, Maryland, which just happens to be the birthplace of, wait for it, Cal Ripken Jr. <laughs> Not too shabby. From Rich Neon to Helen in Switzerland, 80. 80, where are you finding this temperature? Are you clamping on a glacier? It's been between 90 to 95. We don't want that. That's my phone. It's Jody Forrest. We'll talk to him later. Are you camping on a glacier? It's been between 90 to 95 every day for the last three weeks in the Geneva region. Quick teasing. Oh, and to that guy who mailed in last week from Montreux, eat it. <laughs> I hope his ex chair is okay. From Andy. Yes. Tony, long time, first time. I live in Thun, Switzerland, 30 minutes from our nation's capital. I was watering my garden yesterday. I overheard you say, who listens to this in Switzerland? <laughs> I overheard you say that your trainer's currently in Switzerland. Switzerland was Schwitzen with 80 degrees. I had to turn back the podcast 15 seconds to make sure I understood you correctly. And you did say 80 degrees. Dude, 80 degrees is normal. It's nothing to Schwitz about. Last week, we had 95 degrees the entire week. That is something to Schwitz about. Wishing the crew... With Entire crew, a wonderful summer. This but, is this is a mind blowing thing that we get these letters from yeah. people from Hancock, New York, from Switzerland. What are you doing with your You're lives? Putting those two places in the same category. <laughs> what are you doing with your lives, Adam McCaslin in Mattoon, Illinois? I might have a potential parenting hack from Michael concerning the tooth fairy. When I was a kid, I got five bucks per tooth. I thought I'd racked up a fortune until my mom told me the truth as an adult. Every time I received a $5 bill for a lost tooth, I'd give it to my mom for safekeeping. She would then sell, set that bill aside and give it to me again the next time I lost a tooth. <laughs> so I kept getting the same $5 bill over and over again. Um, as a little kid, I didn't bother to keep up with how much I should have saved up, so my mom got to look generous while simultaneously being a cheapskate. As a new parent, that's the sort of strategy I now aspire to imitate. I hope the kids aren't listening. And Kelly Hodges in Pocatello, Idaho. My wife and I follow your example and only leave Tooth Fairy tribute in the form of rolls of quarters. If it's good enough for the worker man, it's good enough for the Tooth Fairy. Absolutely. We believe that our kids have the rest of their lives to learn about cryptocurrency and digital dollars. For now, we've gone ultra retro in the form of hard coin currency. Michael, I hope this helps. One word of caution. Teach Bootsy and the Hammer not to throw the entire role in your direction. <laughs> yes. Matthew Johnson, Greensboro, North Carolina, by way of New Rochelle, New York. Dear Dr. Grandpa, even though you've brought me years of insight and hilarity, I'm going against the grain and will pronounce that I'm rooting for the squirrels to continue gnarling in your garden. The less tomatoes you have, the less chance you're out there in one of those humid afternoons in your garden, sticking a tomato rind in your mouth, <laughs> scaring the Hammer of Bootsy as a prank and having a Vito Corleone moment, and you know the rest. That's great. That's great. One more. Steve Hollowell. Michael Lewis, author of Moneyball et al., is brilliant at creating a narrative around little understood but endlessly fascinating economic scenarios. We all know this. He got Margot Robbie to explain derivatives in economic trenches while soaking in Mr. Bubble. The man is brilliant. What not might not be as well known is he is married to Tabitha, Tabitha Soren. And for anyone who was in college during the 
the days of MTV News, we knew her as the opposite to Kurt Loder. One of the children that he shares with Ms. Soren was a standout softball player. AAU ball ruled the family's life for years. All of this is documented in Lewis's book, Playing to Win. The cost of families chasing the dream of big-time college scholarships is a multi-billion dollar business. Forty-five billion sticks in my head. Oof. One of the only elective activities that, econom- that economists see is recession proof. Having seen this from the outside and with a clear understanding of a 529 college savings plan, not to mention our son's genetic makeup, we managed to avoid nearly all travel sports past the occasional state-level cross-country meet. Do you know what kind of conditioning you need to be a, a cro- good cross-country parent? If you could, Michael Lewis would make a fascinating guest on the show. Michael Lewis is brilliant beyond words. Yes. I have read five or six of his books. I'm pretty sure that he's originally from New Orleans. I think you're right. And I'm pretty sure he went to the same high school that Nick Lemon went to and Peyton Manning and Eli Manning went to. Yeah, I think, I think you're um, right. Isidore Newman High School. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Um, I, I think it's possible, although I, I'm probably wrong on this. There was another name that I was going to say he went to that high school, but I'm pretty sure about this. I'd be afraid to have him on. He's, he's so much smarter than I am and such a better talker. But, but particularly after all those Hancock New York mistakes yeah, he's made. He's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> if it makes you feel any he's better. He's brilliant. I've interviewed him before, and I am much <laughs> not, not nearly oh. as smart as you. And he's a terrific guy to chat yeah, with. Yeah, maybe we should do that. Maybe we should take a shot at sure. that. Sure. If you're out on your bike tight, everyone, as always, do wear white. I hate squirrels. <laughs>
Turns out Shohei Otani is actually two guys Two guys from Japan, roughly the same size It started as a joke, just a little white lie But now they gotta keep it up and say Otani's one guy One is a pitcher, throws a hundred miles an hour One hits homers, got a lot of power One is from Tokyo, one's from Yokohama Different daddies, different mama Otani the pitcher eats fish and drinks martinis Otani the hitter likes coke and roasted weenies They room together but they don't hang out a lot The pitcher likes it cold and the hitter likes it hot If Otani the pitcher ever came up to the plate He'd strike out every time he wouldn't look great If Otani the hitter ever took to the mound He'd throw it to the backstop or he'd bounce it on the ground Show, hey Otani is actually two guys Two guys from Japan, roughly the same size It started as a joke, just a little white lie But now they gotta keep it up and say Otani's one guy Last year they split the MVP prize Turns out Otani is actually two guys